Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be gathered together again to worship. I invite you to turn this morning again to the book of Ephesians. Several weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. where we're admonished to be followers or imitators of God and to follow Christ's example of love. Paul goes on then in this chapter to give some further directions on how to live as believers. He lists some things that should not be a part of a believer's life and some things that we do need to do or we do need to have as a part of our life. I'd like to read Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 7 at this time. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named amongst you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things come the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. We'll stop at that point. So he starts out here in verse 3, mentioning fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness as things that should have no part in the life of a Christian. As I looked at these verses and pondered uh, Paul and, and who he was talking to as he wrote this book, to the, to the Ephesians, this epistle. I was struck with the reality that the society that Paul was living in, the society of people that he was addressing, was probably very similar to the society that we live in today in regards to morality, to purity of lifestyle. The culture of that time was one of rather loose moral standards. Did some reading a while back, uh, forget what I was researching or reading about. But if you do a little research into the Roman and the Greek cultures, it is astounding the the uh, some of their we'll call it moral standards very similar to, I would say, the worst of what we see in our society today. Very permissive lifestyle. Today we live in a society that accepts and even condones the sins of immorality that Paul is denouncing here. In fact, it seems to me that 
lot of these things are accepted and viewed as normal by society around us. And I believe that we as believers can find ourselves, maybe we could say we do find ourselves at times, maybe not accepting these things as okay for ourselves, but finding ourselves viewing and accepting them as, well, it's just normal in our society. It's accepted behavior for people around us. But Paul admonishes, admonishes us here that these things should have no part or no reason for mention in the believer's life. That's because these sins are antagonistic or in opposition or contrary to God's holiness. These are moral sins that are Satan's aberration of God's perfect plan for mankind. Hence, if we're following the Lord, if we're living for Him, we can never allow anything within our life that is something that Satan has, that's part of God's design that Satan has twisted to be used for his benefit or promote his kingdom. Nor can we allow in our minds for what society does to start to normalize these sins in our thinking. We need to keep our focus on God's will for His people no matter what our society, people around us say it's normal and acceptable. We must only accept God's standard of holiness for living. I found it interesting that along with these moral sins that he mentions here. He mentions covetousness. We generally define covetousness as having a desire for something that is not ours. In other words, I might look at Daryl's truck and be covetous and say, I just wish I had a truck like Daryl has. But I looked up the definition of covetousness and I found it interesting that that is a part of covetousness, but it is not the full definition. In fact, it's not the first definition that's given when you look up covetousness. At least not in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. First of all, it lists covetousness as being an inordinate or excessive desire for wealth or possessions. So, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that someone else has. It is an improper or excessive desire for anything. 
here in verse 3, Emory having covetousness in this list may indicate that be re, or be referring to covetousness being in, in relation to physical desires of the flesh. But he also may be indicating something else. He may be indicating that the sin of covetousness is just as repulsive in God's eyes as the earlier mentioned sins of impurity. In fact, in verse 5 that we just read a little bit ago, as well as at least one other place in Scripture, covetousness is, is called idolatry. And I believe that this is because the covetous mind makes the object of its desires into its God. And rather than finding contentment, the covetous person finds that their appetite for what they desire increases in proportion to their indulgence. That was a new thought to me. But as I pondered it, it's very true. The covetous person never has enough. In other words, covetousness is a force that can be fed, but it can never be satisfied. And because of that truth, covetousness will surely lead us away from God in pursuit of what our desire is. Another thought that was interesting to me is that about covetousness being equivalent to idolatry, we need to remember that we're told in Scripture that all good things come from God. As He sees fit, God bestows blessings upon us out of His love and His benevolence towards us as people, His creation. So when we develop an improper desire for something that God hasn't given to me, if there's something that I'm just striving for and God hasn't given to me, I'm not being content with God's goodness and His provision for me. So rather than resting in His provision, we seek to fill our desires according to our own means. And so we're, we're in, in a certain sense, we're preempting God's will for my life when I pursue my covetous desires rather than resting in God's goodness. Matthew 6.33, the 
very familiar verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, Jesus was telling us there that we seek His things first. We can rest in God's goodness to provide what we need. That doesn't mean that we sit around and we don't work and we just wait for for God to hand it to us. Uh, it's like the little story of somebody was talking about God providing for the birds. You know, and somebody else said, yeah, but they don't sit and wait for God to put the food in their mouths. You know, they go out and they work and they find it. God provides, but they have to they have to do their part. But we can rest that God has our good in mind. We need to make God our focus and find contentment and rest in His provisions and not be caught in the trap of covetousness. When God becomes our focus, that is when we can find contentment. Moving on, the last phrase of verse 3 says, Let it not be once named amongst you as becometh saints. He's telling us here that these things, these sins, have no place in the life of the believer. They're sins. They're against the plan of God, and they cannot have a part in the life of one who is a saint. A saint being one who has been sanctified or set apart from the world. Set apart from Satan's kingdom into God's. He moves on in verse 4 to mention filthiness, foolish talk, and jesting. Again, things that have no part in the believer's life. And these sins here are primarily sins of our speech. Filthiness maybe could maybe go a little further than speech, but the idea here is, is things that we verbalize, things that we say. The New, New International Version interprets them this way, obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. You know, Jesus told us that our speech, what comes out of our mouth, is a reflection of what is in our heart. You know, it's pretty rare that something comes out of our mouth that, that's not a reflection of what is inside. So the lips of the believer, the sanctified person, should never utter words that are contrary to God's holiness. Paul says here that these that these things are not convenient or they're out of place for the believer. Now, a lot of these types of things that where you get into this realm of filthiness, foolish talk, and jesting, we start thinking about our sense of humor as, as humans. And I don't believe that Paul is telling us here that we're not to have a sense of humor but rather our speech should be such that builds up and brings glory to God. Our speech as God's children should never be obscene in any way or suggestive 
of anything that's unpure, impure or ungodly. And you know there's so much out there that has double meanings and makes people, it might be funny, but it makes people think of things that are unholy and impure. And it says that it's out of place in the life of the believer. But rather, our speech as believers should be marked by thanksgiving. Thinking on these admonitions against filthy and foolish talk and jesting, I felt burdened to express the concern that I have. It seems that in our society, in the last, I would say, roughly 20 years, maybe closer to 30 in that time frame, it has become common or there has become an accepted common public use of words that 20 or 30 years ago would have been considered uh, impure or, or kind of dirty talk. Uh, you know, and I, I can't stand in front of a group like this and, and share some of the words that I'm thinking of. But there has been an acceptance that wasn't there before. And in that time period, I've noticed that you start hearing these words in, in public settings. You know, it's not just some guys on the job site or, or whatever. It's, it's an everyday language of polite people, so to speak. Um, but worse than that, I've heard some of these words and terms creeping into our language as plain people. We need to make sure that our speech is God-honoring and not anything that would reflect in any way the spirit of Satan's kingdom. Maybe in passages like this, too often we focus on the negative commandments of what not supposed to do, to pass over the commandments of what we are to do, but I wanted to think just a little of what the positive commandment here is. The positive commandment is that our speech should be filled with thanksgiving. Why is that important for us as God's children? If we are giving thanks Number one, it is showing gratitude for God's goodness. It's praising God for what He has done for me. It's, it's acknowledging His goodness. And it also seems to me that, that thankfulness, an attitude and spirit of thankfulness, is probably one of the best antidotes 
or the sin of covetousness that we talked about earlier. If we're thankful for what we have, and we're thankful for the fact that God loves us and provides for us, we're probably going to struggle much less with covetousness than we would otherwise. So let's take that as a challenge. Be more thankful. I think it'll probably make us happier. And it will also help to, to squelch that human tendency towards covetousness. In verse 5 then, he reiterates that those who practice these types of sins will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. This is speaking of a future hope that that the sinner will have no part in without repentance. These sins bring a separation in this life God's goodness, as well as a separation in eternity. There's many blessings in this life that believers enjoy and that unbelievers don't enjoy. You don't have to look very far to see people around us who are suffering from all kinds of disappointments and strife and difficulties in their life that have simply been brought on by living a sinful lifestyle. For the person who is willing to surrender to God's ways, many things in life can be, many difficult things in life can be avoided. So there is a tremendous blessing in this life for following God's ways. Those who practice these sins in this life are going to prevent themselves from experiencing those blessings. They're going to prevent themselves from experiencing the blessing of God in eternity. In verse 6, he goes on to say, Let no man deceive you. you ever thought about how scary of a thing deceit is? Deceit means, to be deceived means that you have accepted as true what is actually false. We live in a society that doesn't have good moorings of truth. Truth might change depending on the situation. My truth's different than your truth, etc. That's not how it is. God is truth, and what He says doesn't change. If our opinion changes, God's truth remains. So it's so important that we are not deceived. If you're deceived, you're you're believing a lie and you're blind to the truth. What Paul is telling us in that warning is that there are those who would tell us 
that these sins in this chapter and these these sinful actions, sinful words don't matter. Or they might say that it's just impossible to live above some of these things. But he's saying, don't be deceived by such talk. These are things that will bring God's judgment and wrath on the disobedient. I've been reading through the Old Testament prophets, and I've again been impressed strongly with God's hatred for, for the sinfulness of mankind. And it's recorded again and again how God brought judgment on people for disobedience to Him. For disobedience and rejection of His way. You know, we live in an age of grace. We haven't seen God's judgment, so to speak, striking down those living in sin. But God has promised there is coming a day when judgment will come. Judgment will be brought on all those who have rejected Him. So Paul is saying, don't be deceived into thinking that these things don't matter. Don't be deceived into thinking that as humans we're powerless to live above these things. Another passage that speaks about that deception is 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. It says this there, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here we see that there's, there's people who reject the truth and t had pleasure in unrighteousness. They, they went the opposite way. Rather than accepting God's truth, they rejected it and, and lived in the pleasures of unrighteousness. And we see here that at some point, God says, that's enough. I'll just turn you over to your delusion. Turn them over to believe what they want to believe. We never, we need to never forget the importance of accepting God's way, His truth. Because God will not always continue to call. He will, there, there is a time when we reject Him that He will turn us over to our own delusion. And there's many voices out there today that are declaring an easier way. We need to remember there's only one way. It's the way of holiness through Christ. Then in verse 7, Paul tells us, Be ye not partakers with them. 
speaking of those who practice these things. Last week, for an opening verse for our service for the, for the message, I read 2 Corinthians 6, 17, and 18, uh, speaking of God as our Father. I'm going to read that again. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a, a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Again, God is expressing His desire for His people to be separate from the world, separate from the sins and actions and words that dishonor Him. We need to take Paul's admonition to heart that we not be deceived or lulled into thinking that these things are acceptable. You know, the closer we associate the people that accept these things, the easier it is for us in our minds to accept and normalize them in our thinking. sure that we're not deceived into thinking they don't matter. Because they do, and they'll separate us from God's blessing. We also need to remember that God doesn't ask us to do the impossible when He asks us to live a life of holiness and purity. He also gives us the ability to do it very familiar verse we could probably all quote 1 Corinthians 10 13 there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it God has promised us in his word that when we face a temptation there is the strength to overcome that is greater than the strength of the temptation. No matter how that how strong that temptation might seem, no matter how bad of influence we may have been under, God has promised strength to overcome. Another promise that I find precious is in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. According as His divine power hath given, us, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That verse is telling us is that God has promised to give us all things pertaining unto life and godliness. And so if, if God sets a standard for holy godly living, He's saying, I'm going to give you everything you need to attain to that standard. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect people and we never slip and fall. That God is faithful and gives us what we need. We should never be deceived into thinking that a life of holiness isn't important or that we can't live above these things. 
God has provided a way if we surrender to Him and we seek His help that we can. Our fleshly desires are the weak link that breaks the chain of God's blessing. God will always keep up His end of the deal. So as we live in this sinful world, we need to keep our focus on the standard of purity and holiness in actions and in speech that God requires of His people. We not allow ourselves to be deceived or slowly and gradually influenced into thinking that there's another way other than following God's way of holiness. So my challenge this morning as we look at these verses is to, to be people that embrace the truth of God's way so that we can experience His blessing in this life and in eternity. And God bless you as you go forth and do that serving Him through Amazon.